And now, coming to you live from the appropriately socially distanced, isolated virtual Gershwin room, remote broadcast into the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with a very special guest, the Sherlyn Jet, Shirley Jackson Award-winning author of Burning Girls and Other Stories, Veronica Shannos on the Coot Street Podcast! And, 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 and we're back, and welcome, Veronica. Uh, Hello. The, well, it's not quite the first time, because we, you and I chatted last summer on one of our little 10 minutes with things. But since then, and in fact, within the last week, I guess, your first collection of short stories, Burning Girls and Other Stories, is out. And I, at the immediately beginning, have to awkwardly apologize for something because, as you know, I, I reviewed the book for Locus. And at one point in the review, I said, some of your conflation of Jewish history with fairy tales reminded me of Jane Yolen. Well, I didn't get that Jane had actually written the introduction to your book or written a forward to because the Kindle ARC that I got didn't have Jane's forward. <laughs> oh, well, I have to say, if you're apologizing for comparing my work to Jane Yolen's, let that be the worst thing that ever is done to me. <laughs> I, 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 am, I, was, I was honored to read it. I was honored when Jane consented to write the foreword. I'm, I blush whenever I read that foreword. So, you know, I, I can only read it in small doses and then walk away and, and, and hide my face. And as, as long as we're on uh, the subject of, of, of Jane, who is an old friend and a friend of the podcast, we should acknowledge that she published her 400th book this week this week oh, this that's past wonderful. week it's wonderful. um now this is th th this is a lesson for those of you who who um write adult literature if you write board books you can get more of them done but i know from talking to <laughs> that as much work and as much thought goes into one of those books that have 700 words in them uh, mm -hmm. so i uh just wanted to admire her and i wanted to uh, acknowledge that, yes, you, some of the stories that you deal with cover some of the same territory that Jane covers, but I'm pretty sure there aren't any Jane Yolen stories that feature the Sex Pistols or the Clash. <laughs> well, that is that is one way you can tell the difference between us. It's always nice to have a little to have a little tell, yeah. and and punk rock is one of my tells. Yes, Though I will say four hundred books is a lot to check to be sure. I mean, yeah, you can't conclusively like rule it out, Gary. I would not no. put it past her. She's pretty uh, wide-ranging. But first of all, congratulations on getting The Burning Girl and Other Stories out. It must be quite Thank a you. trip. It is. How does um, it feel? It feels wonderful, I have to say. It has been um, a dream of mine to have a collection for more years than I want to admit at this point. And I am delighted. And I had been worried that I would not be so excited and delighted because, you know, the pandemic has shut so many of the celebratory things we used to do down. But as it turns out, it is simply exciting. And I am just as excited. So, And it's a terrific cover. It's, a, it's, 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 it's an unnerving cover, but it's, uh, it's, it's gorgeous. I was looking, though, since I was finding out all kinds of things I didn't know about the book when I read it, that you've gotten... Um, Everybody gets blurbs, but you get blurbs from people who don't give away blurbs easily. I mean, I was looking, Karen Fowler, Jeff Ford, Kat Valenti, um, Roz Caveney. Roz is not impressed easily. Um, Roz is one, a wonderful and so intelligent person. I cannot, I, I'm, right. I'm, I, I mean, like I'm, I, I'm honored by all these pe by by these amazing people um, consenting to blurb the book. Um, There's something about, I mean, like I say, I don't pay a lot of attention to blurbs, but some people's blurbs I do pay attention, and, and and Roz is one of them. And down at the very bottom of this, this is the Macmillan page I'm looking at, is Jack Zipes. Jack's is Jack is the guy. I mean, he's a fairy tale guy. He knows everything. 
Oh yes, he he is. Um, you know, he is he is the 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 grand old master of my field. Um, when I when I have my academic mortarboard on, and I'm a fairy tale scholar, uh, Jack Zipes is the is the man who created the field as it now stands in many many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've met on and off at conferences over the years, and he is he is charming and charismatic, and and obviously uh, excruciatingly smart. All those things, and uh, yeah, I was. Super excited that he said yes to blurbing the book. <laughs> well, one of the things that's oh, – go ahead, Jonathan. I was going to say, let me start. Where did, where did the journey to the book begin? Because, I mean, your first stories appeared almost 20 years ago. So it must feel like a real lifetime to get to this. It really – it does, actually, in many ways. And the first story that appeared was actually How to Bring Someone Back from the Dead, uh, which is – which started, which I thought I began to think of as a, when I wrote it, I thought of it as a prose poem. Um, I was writing a lot of poetry at the time, but the poetry never got accepted for publication and the short stories did. So now I think of it as a short story. And it actually, I published it first in a very short-lived two-issue zine I put out before I realized that I was interested in writing, but not interested in any of the other myriad uh, talents that have to go into making and selling a zine. Um, And I wrote it for... Um, I don't know if you if you saw the dedication. Um, very yes, yeah, for Jennifer. For Jennifer Lee. Jennifer Lee. Yeah, who was um, my best friend uh, for a very for a long time for a decade. We met in high school, and she became um, an editor at Tor Books, mm-hmm. uh, and um, died very suddenly in about twenty years ago now. Uh, almost exactly 20 years almost ago. Almost exactly, month, be, as I recall. No, actually, not, in a week, it'll be 20 years ago. In a week, it'll be 20 years ago. Um, and it was a very sudden and unexpected death, and it was horrible. We were but we were very young at the time, um, and I guess she still is, although I am not. Um, and I wrote that story for her, How to Bring Someone Back from the Dead, about mm. thinking about all those fairy tales and myths that are about the fantasy that if you love somebody enough, you can bring them back from the dead, right? And how how that that it uh, it doesn't work there, uh, you know, and obviously it doesn't work, and um, sort of how when you the first time you confront the failure of of your love to be able to overcome death, what that means and what that feels like. So in some sense, the journey toward this collection began uh, with Jenna's death, and um, it was in in the wake of her death that I started to write again, um, and I wrote I wrote that story for her. And so with the, when I went to dedicate the collection, um, I sort of circled back around and, and dedicated the, the entire book to her. Uh, she, was, she was an influential editor. I'm, I'm fairly certain I met her once or twice, but I remember how dramatic it was uh, that no one, is, no one was expecting that at all. No, it was very sudden. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a combination of her asthma and anaphylactic shock. It just Right, there was some, some sudden response to it well one of the so things- what came first the academic writing or the or writing fiction um i suppose chronologically in my life writing fiction came first because i was one of those kids who was writing fiction before i could write my mother who was an amazing amazing mother uh, and has always had the utmost confidence in my writing used to sit down with me before i could hold a pen and I would dictate stories and she would write them down and then I would illustrate them and then she'd staple them together and we'd have a book. Um, So I I can't think of anything coming earlier than that. Um, But in terms of 
my adult fiction, I feel like they've developed together that I'm often worrying at the same problem or the same issue from two different angles, um, that I'm, I'm, I'm grappling with the same concerns, um, both creatively and academically, and they sort of feed off each other for me. They're both, for me, academic writing is creative. When I, when I'm analyzing somebody else's text, I feel like it's a collaboration. I'm creating a new reading with that writer. And when I'm writing creatively, I spend a lot of time researching and incorporating influences and, um, uh, uh, th- and, and sort of bringing that kind of um, academic approach to bear on it. So they, they, they mm-hmm. feel very close to me. It's interesting that, I mean, I, I think I could have guessed that even if I hadn't known you because in, uh, well, certainly Burning Girls itself, but uh, if I'm recalling correctly, the story Phosphorus, you're, you're quoting William Morris and Karl Marx and, and Trevelyan and uh, I don't know who else, uh, uh, Herbert Spencer. Is, is So So this looks like a, it looks like a horror story written by a historian. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I'm assuming that's a compliment. I'm going to take it. No, it is. I mean, but it is a horror story. And one of the things you may have noticed in the current issue of Locus is that I not only reviewed your book, but our good friend Paula Garan, who normally reviews horror fiction, so here's a collection of short stories that I'm looking at as fantasy and Paula is looking at as horror. And I guess we're both right. <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting to me. I don't think of myself as writing horror because I have such, I'm such a big baby when it comes to horror. I have such a low tolerance for most kinds of horror that I can only, I have a very narrow uh, window in which I can, in which I'm willing to be frightened. Um and I guess I don't think of my writing as writing that could that could be frightening to the reader, right? That your your average reader of phosphorus isn't sitting there worrying about white phosphorus settling into their own jaw. Um, but that's my that's but I but it's very it is certainly very dark and it's about it's about the inevitable deterioration toward death of this young woman. Um, so I I can see it being a but horror. It, it story. doesn't make it any less scary. I mean, those of us who read horror fiction aren't worried about evil clowns in the sewers either, but they're still scary. And if you describe, could you very briefly describe what Fosse Jaw is? Sure. Um, Before, uh, in the 19th century, many matches were lucifers. They were made with white phosphorus heads, which meant you could could strike them anywhere. So if you watch old Westerns and uh, it it portrays cowboys striking matches on the bottom of their boots or whatever, those are white phosphorus matches. And white phosphorus is very, very cheap and it's very, very toxic. So these white phosphorus particles would settle into um, usually the woman's jaw through cavities, holes in their teeth. Yeah. And um, essentially the jaw would die, go necrotic, and begin to decay inside the living woman's head. Um, and there was one very drastic remedy. If it was possible, you could have the jaw amputated, but obviously that's not the world's greatest option and also you have to be in a very particular position to be able to have that happen. And most of the time, women just died from it. Um, nowadays, we don't use white phosphorus in matches. We use red phosphorus, which is much safer. And about at least in the 19th century, it was about three times as expensive. Um, white phosphorus is still used, I believe, by the U.S. military, although it is banned in in many conventions, maybe I'm mistaken about that, but it is used. It does have military applications. It may be used, but it's certainly not being used in sweatshops with young Irish immigrant girls. Right, right, right. It is no longer being used in in factories in the UK or the US. Which, which is another historical fact that comes out in the story that uh, the Irish potato famine 
obviously led to a lot of these young women migrating to London and having to work in these factories. Absolutely. And it's, I suppose, one of the good things about being a writer is nothing ever goes to waste. So you become very interested in something at age 16 or 17 for completely frivolous reasons. And 15, 20 years later, you have a reservoir of knowledge to draw on when you're writing a story. So when I was a teenager, I became very uh, interested in Irish music. Uh, And there were a bunch of Irish bars in New York City that I used to hang out at when I was underage. I won't speak their names, although I doubt they're still around. Maybe they are. Doesn't matter. Um, And listen to music. And I became very interested in Irish history and Irish politics. And because I'm a big geek, no matter what, even if I'm a 17-year-old underage drinker, I read a lot about Irish history and Irish politics. And then that knowledge was there waiting for me when I went to write Phosphorus. And I had to look up a few facts, but I was able to incorporate it in what felt like a fairly seamless way. Um, And that was, that was, seems weird to say a joy when you're talking about Fosse Jaw and the Irish famine. Um, but I always find a certain pleasure in, in research and being able to weave things together like that. And so that was, that was time well spent when I was young, even though I didn't know it. <laughs> I guess so. It's, uh, but, but, but it, re- it reflects uh, what, what seems to be another theme that shows up mostly in this story and, uh, and in the burning girls. And I, I don't know how to put this. Uh, there's a, I'm I'm always pleased when I see a writer who has nailed a corner of Fantastica all her own, that nobody else has been there. I mean, to some extent, uh, it may be a very narrow corner. And it may be that at least in those stories, and I'm trying to think of a couple of other stories that might relate to it, that you kind of nailed kind of the, oh, Jewish feminist radical supernatural labor history story. (laughs) That that wasn't fact my age. But seriously, one of the things we don't see enough of in fantasy, I don't think, is discussion of labor and labor condition. And and that recurs in, in, in your fiction more than once. It does. And that comes from my parents and the way I was raised. Uh, my parents were are, are very leftist. They were Marxists when I was growing up. My father still is. My mother is now, in, as far as I know, an unaffiliated leftist. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that they were ever CP, I just mean unaffiliated philosophically. Yeah. Um, and my mother raised me, she was a stay at home mom for most of my life. And she, not most of most of my child life, I mean, and she raised me, uh, with a very strong set of leftist values and a very, um, strong knowledge of leftist history as best she could. And so those are, that's the, that's my background. Um, that's sort of another, another place where I draw on information that I, I, I absorbed very young um, and interests and perspectives that I grew up taking for granted to a certain extent. So, so you knew as a child, for example, about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire? Yes, I knew about the Triangle. I knew about the Spanish Civil War as a child. I knew about, gosh, what else? Um, I mean, certainly the civil rights movement goes without saying. Um, all kinds of things. My mother took me to walk picket lines when I was young, when I was two years old. This is a story my mother loves to tell. <laughs> when I was two years old, H&H bagel makers went on strike in New York City on the Upper West Side. We were living on the Upper West Side when I was two. It was before the landlord there decided, uh, anyway, before we moved down to the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, o- being a picky and demanding child, I would only eat bagels from H&H bagels. I would not have any of your inferior imitation bagels, as far <laughs> as I was concerned. But they were on strike. 
So every day we'd walk past H&H bagels and I'd say to my mother, I want a bagel. And she'd wheel me up to the picket line and say, what is this, Veronica? (laughs) And I would say, because she had taught me, it's a union picket line. And she'd say, what does it mean? And she said, I'd start crying and say, don't cross. Um, And (laughs) and that was how I was raised. And apparently the bagel, the, the strikers were saying, lady, get her a bagel. And my mother was saying, no, she has to learn proper values. Um, <laughs> Good for your mom. My mother is wonderful. Uh, my mother is wonderful. Um, and uh, I forgot why I was telling this story. I got so into telling well, We were it. talking about how you learned about labor history and how you learned about uh, the, the kind of thing. And as I said, it's, it's something that um, is in the background of a lot of fantasy and, and, and seldom brought out in, 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 in into the uh, foreground and and yet it's there I mean one of the things uh, one of one of my favorite writers who has also worked with Jonathan more than once is KJ Parker uh, who writes fantasy novels in which he actually worries about who manufactures those 40,000 arrows that you needed and how did they get paid and how did the materials get to them and that sort of thing and that was where phosphorus sorry that was that was where phosphorus came from for me, um, that I was reading. It was for an anthology of gas lamp fantasy, 19th century fantasy. And I was uh-huh. writing it at a time when steampunk was a very big, very big thing. And there was yeah. a romanticization of the Victorian era that did not sit right with me. Um, that um, Certainly, there are many wonderful things the Victorian era brought us. William Morris, I adore. And, um, but the, the sort of um, beautification of it and the uh, idealization of it, when so much of that beauty was built on the suffering and exploitation of so many people, I wanted to do something like, as every day as the matches you light um, a lamp with, what that actually costs in, in terms of humanity. Um, somebody else who does really, I think, really great with um, leftist and labor uh, specific is Nick Mamatas, uh, who yeah. wrote Arbeitskraft mm-hmm. and uh, We Never Sleep, if I'm remembering the story titles correctly, mm-hmm. um, which was also about the Bryant and May match women, I think. Yeah, there were there, there, there are a couple of stories I've read about that. And I'm, I, I'm trying to remember if Jeff Ford wrote one or I may be misremembering it. Or but the, the general point I, I wanted to get at is, is the idea that uh, uh, you're right, the romanticization of uh, Victorian and uh, and Regency England is something that kind of ignores the working classes, and and, and yet um, and yet fantasy persists with that. Mm-hmm. And and one the, one of the other things I think is interesting. If I shift the topic a little bit, is something that you do, which is to kind of take um, fairy tale motifs or actual fairy tales and ground them in historical reality, uh, which is something else that. Uh, Something else that Jane Yellen is in, I'm sure you're familiar with her ideas about Rumpelstiltskin. And in fact, you've got a Rumpelstiltskin motif in the story Burning Girl. I do. But there's also the story, what is it? It's Among the Thorns, which is fascinating to me because it's one of those grim fairy tales that you have to get to complete grim fairy tales or otherwise this one will get left out. It's the most <laughs> anti-Semitic. Of, it is horrific, yeah. It's a terrible story. And you turn it into a kind of weird tale of empowerment. Uh, but you're also situating it in, what, 16th century Germany in a very specific place and time. 17th century Germany, 17th yeah, century. In, in Hesse, in, in Herx. Well, it starts out in Herx and goes to a made-up village. Um, in terms of grounding fairy tales, where I really um, 
where I'm who, the person whose footsteps I'm most consciously following there is Angela Carter's, um, you know, who wrote in mm. either notes from the front line or Sadean woman that when you take mo- when you take motifs that are considered universal or essential and actually re-embed them in their um, material realities, their material context, mm-hmm. it lays bare power relations. Um, it, it lays bare the power relations that gave rise to those. And she was talking mainly about power relations between men and women um, and sexual exploitation. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's an insight that applies to all kinds of power relations in terms of stories that um, get held up as universal. Obviously, the Jew and the thorn bush, the story that Among the Thorns is based on, is not, is not a story that is now considered universal, but it is in the Grimms, who are often, who are often held up by people from Bruno Bettelheim to, you know, my students as being the true fairy tales, the real fairy tales, the, the universal and timeless fairy tales. Um, and I, I very much wanted to um, embed that story in the reality of what, what that kind of anti-Semitism in pre-modern Germany would have looked like. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember why I chose the 17th century. I think I remember I chose the place because that was where the Grimm's had collected the tale. Yeah, okay. Um, so that seemed pretty straightforward. Why did I choose the 17th century? Um, I might have chosen it because I wanted to send the protagonist to England at the end of the story, and England reopened to the Jews under Cromwell in the oh, late 17th okay. century. Um, I definitely wanted it to be pre-industrial, as the as the fairy tale was, and I guess because the Grimm's fairy tales often lay claim to a kind of timelessness, a, a sort of pre-industrial agrarian timeless quality, I wanted to find a historical period that fit those requirements, um, and then, but but to but to make it make it material, make it. Um, Genuine, yeah. So, so, so it is in a way finding, well, as, as you just said, finding a historical period into which this story more or less settles without violating anything. I don't want to get too much into the academic side of this because uh, you and I are academics, and not everybody listening to us is. But you, men- you mentioned Bettelheim, and Bettelheim wrote what was certainly one of the most was certainly one of the best-selling academic books ever about fairy tales, The Uses of Enchantment. I know that Jack Zipes has very little patience with Bedlam. I know that the graduate students who were friends of mine when I was getting my doctorate at the University of Chicago, I had graduate students in uh, the Sonia Shankman Orthogenic School, which was his Mm -hmm. school for autism, which turned out to be a horrible idea. Uh, As a matter of fact, here's a piece of trivia which I will share with you, that only graduate students late... The, the, the graduate students who worked under Bettelheim called him Brutal Beetlebrain, which is says something about how horrible he was to some of his students. Yeah, yeah, that... But you'd you written, know, the, you, you'd written a book on psychoanalysis and fairy tales, so you had to deal with Bettelheim. I, I have. Um, I am of the Zipes, Zipes uh, school of thought when it comes to Bettelheim, and I, I did once say at ICFA in, res, in, in, in an impatient response to a presenter whose paper I felt was um, not up on late on the latest folklore scholarship that the only thing Bettelheim knew less about than fairy tales was child development. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a nice bon mot. I don't, I, I can't, I'm not here to judge his knowledge of child development, although um, I have, I have thoughts, um, but certainly his knowledge of fairy tales, he, he knew what he was looking for and he yeah. found it by looking for it. He, may, he would make contradictory statements about fairy tales, like 
um, you know, that they were, they were the original essential basic uh, wisdom and then talk about how they'd been refined through the centuries. And, you know, they can't be both. They right. can't be the original unchanged wisdom and then refined and also changed by every generation. It's, that's not how that works. He would find deep significance in, say, the number of crows in a fairy tale. And you'd point out that in a, diff- in a different variant, it was a different number of swans. But for him, the Grimm's were the authority, and, if the, and any other variant didn't matter. Um, so certainly he used folklore to find what he wanted to find. That said, all that said, right, let me put all my folklore cred out there. He was making an intervention in discourse about what kinds of stories are appropriate for children in the late 70s that needed to be made. I can right? see that. That there was a discourse about whether fairy tales were appropriate for children, given all the violence and given all the scary um, elements and given all of this and all of that. And the intervention he was making was to say these elements are essential for children's psychological development. And his intervention worked and children kept on reading fairy tales. Um, and that's, that is a debate that happens among people who, among, among people who gatekeep children's literature every few decades and has yeah. for hundreds of years now what kind of literature children should be reading. As a pro-fairy tale person, I appreciate the effect his intervention has. As a folklore scholar, he's just not right about a lot of things. Yeah, I, 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 I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is what, 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 what Zipes is concerned about, of course, is how materially he was wrong about so many elements of how the Grimm's collected their tales and so forth and so on. But I think you're right. The, the, the attempt to sanitize fairy tales, uh, which comes and goes and it's, or the attempt to make fairy tales. Um, look, I don't want to use the phrase politically correct, but let's say one of the reasons. Anodyne. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that, that some, some fairy tales are safe for kids and others are not. Um, that real wicked witches who are genuine, and you've got some, really wicked witch characters in your fiction as well. And even though it's not fiction for children, it's fiction that acknowledges the reality of wickedness, I guess. Yes. And, and I think that's very important for children as well as for adults. But had you ever thought about writing for children? I have, and I've tried to, and I have not been successful. Um, I've, I've always spent, I've spent a lot of time with children over the past 20 years. I, I, I babysat my way through graduate school to make ends meet, and I've always really enjoyed the company of children. So I've wanted to write stories for the kids that I know and love and take care of. Um, and I can tell stories to kids off the top of my head, but when it comes to writing an effective children's book, I have not been able to achieve that. One of my uh, good friends, Peter Straub, is a horror writer, as, as he's best known, apparently was a terrific storyteller to his kids when they were little. And I can't imagine what stories he told, but I can't imagine they were terribly comforting. Um, and, and my own grandkids, uh, besides the R.L. Stein, one of their favorite books was a Neil Gaiman book called The Wolves in the Walls, which oh, is really wonder. disturbing, but it's a wonderful book. So, to be, to my godchildren and my son went through a phase of just wanting me to read that to them over and over and over here. again. Same thing here. I and, love that. I loved it. Yes. And, and even to this day, my one of my, let me see. The oldest of these grandkids is, oh my God, now twenty-two. Even to this day, if I say when the wolves comes out of when the wolves come out of the walls, she'll say it's all over. It's all over. Yeah. Um, every, I think there was a period when either my son or my godson, I forget which, looked at me at one point and said, 
are there really wolves in the walls? And I said, <laughs> no, it's just a story. There are no wolves in the walls. And that was, that was all we needed. Everything was okay after yeah. that. You know, that was, well, that I was glad of, to confirm that. It's one of the things that fascinates me, uh, both from an academic and a literary point of view, a point at which kids realize that stories are stories, um, that stories are not representations of experiences that they might have themselves, but they're, they're fun. Uh, mm-hmm. They're entertainment, and, and, and people enjoy getting scared like that. Um, let, let me go on to another aspect of your fiction, because we, we mentioned this at the beginning, and we're getting very academic. We haven't talked about um, Sid Vicious. We haven't talked about The Clash. We haven't talked about punk bars on the Lower East Side, which turns out to be kind of a fairy tale polder where people are trapped for years. Where did that aspect of your writing come from? Well, um... I was a very happy child and a very happy teenager for a while. And then when I was about 16, my parents split up and everything just went off a cliff for me. Um, And at the time, I found The Clash. I found um, uh, London Calling, the the London Calling Uh album. And this this was a bit late because this would have been 92. But um, I found it. And I listened to it over and over again. And right around that time, a box, a Clash box set came out called Clash on Broadway. And I saved up my money and I bought it. And, I, you know, I, 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 all I can say is I think, I think Joe Strummer saved my life. Um, it was, really? um, I was miserable. Um, but hearing that music made me feel like I was holding on to a rope and there was someone on the other end of the rope who understood how I felt, who understood oh. what I felt. Um, and I began to look around me and realized, I grew up on the Lower East Side. I grew up on Avenue A, and I grew up in uh, in the area. I grew up a f- I grew up walking distance from CBGB, and I grew up in the area where many of the New York City punks lived at back in back in the day. Um, and it became I loved the music. I had always loved the look. I remember growing up seeing, you know old school punks walking down the street and they both terrified me and attracted me greatly as a child. Um, And I always, I always wanted to be like that, but didn't feel I was, you know, cool enough, especially at 16 or 17 or 18, where you don't feel that, you know, you're, you can ever live up to what you want to be. Um, But so I just spent a lot of time being, as I mentioned earlier, the, the nerd I am, no matter what I'm into, I have to learn everything I can about it. So while listening to the music, I talked to people who had been there, and I read all the books I could find, and uh, I listened to more music and read all the interviews I could find. And um, that, I want to say aesthetic, but more than aesthetic, it sort of became the uh, interior design, the architecture of Uh my subconscious or my conscious, I guess, in a way. Um, it became one of the prisms I filter everything through when I think. Um, so that's where that aspect of things comes from. It comes from what, it feels like it comes from my heart, Gary. <laughs> As, uh, <laughs> I can see that. I mean, the, it, it, it's another area, it's an area which I'm probably too old to have been really involved with. But I know Liz Hand was very involved with the, the punk scene and more in D.C. than in New York and that sort of thing. And it kind of formed her aesthetic in the same way you just described. And, and and yet, even she doesn't quite do what you do in sort of finding analogs between fairy tales and, and, and punk dive bars on the Lower East Side. I guess, I guess that's just um, me marrying 
my two obsessions um, or my two my two yeah. great loves in some way. They, I have to bring them together so we can all we can all live together in a relatively happy arrangement, I suppose. Um, but I grew up I grew up around those kinds of bars, and some of them were very scary even to walk past. I remember saying to my mother at one point when I was uh, in my twenties, you know, I used to be scared when we walked down the street past Alcatraz, which is the name of a bar on St. Mark's uh, and Avenue A. And my mother said. That's because it was a scary place. I used to be scared walking past Alcatraz too. <laughs> um, and I, I knew people who had been part of that scene and uh, I was deeply jealous of them. And uh, I guess I just, I don't know, for that, I've got no smart, I've got nothing smart to say besides it's well, part of who I am. I, I, I don't think, the thing that strikes me as interesting in, in looking at sort of this arc of this this range of your fiction is that, no, you don't. You're not supposed to say anything smart about punk. You're supposed to just punk. Uh, and 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 then there, in in between that, there there are these things about fairy tales. And then over here, there's the intellectual side, the sort of scholarly uh, aspect. And, and another thing we haven't talked about. You mentioned your that first story that you wrote um, for Jenna Police on how to bring someone back from the dead, which is kind of you're right. It's not really a story. It's like a prose poem. It's like a piece of experimental writing. And there's some of that as well. There's your story, Alice, for example, which uh, there are two stories that come to mind. One is the Emma Goldman story, and the other is the Alice story, where part of it is straight history, or and, and part of it is um, completely experimental, free association, uh, clanging is the, is, is the term you use, which I gather is a therapist term. Yes. So, my, my mother got her MSW when I was a teenager, so I picked up some of that. <laughs> actually, I don't think I'd seen the phrase before, but I've seen, I, I mentioned in the review that there was the part of the, oh, we should mention a little bit, that part of this deals with uh, the, the, the sisters, the Liddell sisters, who were uh, photographic subjects of, of Charles Dodge and of Lewis Carroll. And then it moves into a, a mirror uh, kind of fantasy of Alice. Uh, where she's afraid that she'll be replaced by the girl in the mirror, which, by the way, is exactly the plot of the movie Us. Um, Spoilers! I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) I guess I messed up that movie. Um, (laughs) But then you end up with this, like, fugue. uh, Yes. And that must have been either really fun to write or really hard to write. It was really fun to write. Okay. It was wonderful to write. I I loved writing that. It was... was, it was just a pleasure. It was a pleasure. It was working with language on the basis of sound and association rather than on the basis of grammatical structure. And I love working on the basis of grammatical structure, but it was a pleasure just to use language like, I don't know, like silk that feels good as it goes by, even if the meaning is not entirely uh, clear. Have you gotten gotten feedback on that story? Because uh, as as I say, it begins almost as as a scholarly essay on what might happen, what might have happened to these girls and ends in uh, the, the reason I ask that is because I mentioned uh, in my review that it reminded me a little bit of Joyce. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the kind of free association that opens things like a portrait of the artist. And then afterwards, I thought, the other thing it reminds me of is The Last Unicorn. The butterfly speeches in The Last Unicorn are almost a version of clanging. They're snippets of songs, snippets of rhymes uh, that, that, uh, that are meant to indicate, um, you know, the, the flightiness, I guess, of the butterfly's mind. But apparently, uh, from what I've heard or read, Beagle spent, the young Peter Beagle, all of 28, spent months trying to construct those sentences. And it sounds like you were just having fun. 
I, uh, I was having fun with it. It felt like, I don't know, like I imagine spinning straw into gold must feel like when you, when it passes through your fingers. Um, Joyce is, is my, my advisor when I was a graduate student was a Joyce scholar, is a Joyce scholar, Vicki uh-huh. Mahaffey. And she ran a Finnegan's Wake reading group um, that met, uh, I don't know, every few weeks and would read passages of Finnegan's Wake aloud and try to make sense of them. And I, I would drop in and out of that group. I was never uh-huh. a very uh, regular attendee, but I went a few times and, and enjoyed doing the readings. Um, I enjoyed how much meaning you could make with just inflecting words with different tones. Um, even if you even if you didn't quite know what was going on in the sentence, and so I was thinking of Joyce when I wrote that last section. Um, but no, I have not. You are the first person. The review you wrote was the first time I ever got any feedback on that story. I know when I was writing it, I thought to myself, "I sure as hell hope Lady Churchill's takes this story because nobody else will." Um, and they did. Thank you very much to Lady Churchill's and Kelly Link and Gavin Grant and Knockwood. Um, but you are the first person who's ever. Um, commented on it and it felt like you really understood what I was trying to do I'm with fine. it. So. I'm, I'm, it's, it's always gratifying to hear something along those lines. And and partly the reason it reminded me, it's funny, you mentioned reading parts of Finnegan's Wake. As, as I said, I wasn't thinking of that. But, but somewhere, it's in my storage locker, there's a recording, you can probably find it online, a couple of recordings of Joyce reading from Finnegan's Wake. And one of them is he's reading from the Anna Livia Pluribel uh, section, which is one, I, I, I've spent years, to this day, I can't tell you if I've read Finnegan's work. I've read a lot of it because I would spend days on a page of it. But after listening to Joyce in his beautiful, lilting Irish brogue read the Anna Olivia, it, it's, it's a group of washerwomen complaining to each other about their men. Uh, and it makes sense when you hear him read it. You go back to the page and you think, okay, this is a recreation of a kind of language which is... Um, as you would hear it in a group of people talking, it's almost like um, it's, it's it's almost like a Robert Altman movie. They're all talking at once, so you've got all this stuff jumbled together, and that's the impression I got at the end of uh, of, of the Alice Fantasia. Is that uh, there's just a lot? Of, I mean, obviously it's fuguing in the psychological sense, but there's also it, um, a sense of just language as fun. Yes, that's what I was. That's how it felt, and that's what I was going for. And you know, of course, Joyce was also. Had it had a very strong interest in Carol. Anna Olivia Pluribel is the same letter as the same initial letters as Alice Pleasant's Little. I did not know that. Wow. Um, and cool. Carol made up words constantly, right? Kalu, Kaleo, Frabshiste. He made up chortle. Nobody had ever used the word chortle before he used it in in uh, oh, Jabberwocky. Jabberwocky. Uh, so there's a lot of. So I think there's a reason I was thinking of Finnegan's Wake when I was writing the Alice story. That's 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 um, well. As I say, also it's. It's a rare example in our field of, of, of what you'd call experimental fiction because you're doing uh, a, a you even use a therapeutic term to sort of account for it. But Joyce would not have known what clanging is. Could you quickly define what here. clanging means? Okay. In, in so I am I am not the world's authority on this, but as I understand it, clanging is um, when you start when. Um, you start speaking by associating words based on their sound rather than based on their meaning or their grammar. Uh-huh. Um, and you move from one word to another based on, based on it's sounding alike. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's something that, uh, that I mentioned it as fuguing because I know from actually having known people that it's, it's a kind of free association that is based, you're right, entirely on sound. And sometimes schizophrenic patients will enter into fugues that are nothing but that. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, 
it's it 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 interests it interests me. It always interests me when I see uh, any kind of what we would consider what back in the fifties or sixties or seventies would have been considered experimental fiction or or concrete poetry or whatever uh, in the context of a story. Uh, you know, in a in, in a collection mostly associated with genre, we don't see a lot of that. Weirdly enough, James Blish used to do that. James Blish was also a, a, a scholar of Joyce, and there are bits in some of his stories, like Common Time, that are also lifted from Finnegan's Wake. So, so it's I, I just wanted to congratulate you on doing that. But I wanted to move to a completely different um, story, and um, except I'm. <laughs> I'm I'm blanking on the title of it, but it's 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 your Hollywood story. Oh, Lily Glass. Lily Glass. Uh, I, how could I forget that? It's a great character name, and um, that struck me as being something which brings another kind of cultural matrix into all the things we've been talking. We've been talking about fairy tales, talking about punk rock, talking about the Lower East Side, talking about labor history, and here's a story which, to my mind, and as 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 you know, I said this reminded me in unsettling ways of a star is born. I did not have that association in mind when I wrote it, but I can certainly see it um, now that it's pointed out to me. It, um, you know, it came out of a very simple idea, which was that, it, which was thinking about Snow White, the stepmother is obsessed with another woman's beauty. We don't usually think of that as hatred. Um, we, we can think of that as passion as well, um, or, or love. Um, and w- I remember setting it in that, in the studio era, because I was thinking about the um, age difference between Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. Uh-huh. Uh, I was thinking specifically of that couple. And I was thinking specifically of Lauren Bacall when I wrote Lily Glass, although, of course, Lily is a much unhappier um, version of, of, right. of I, I would not, she's not based on Bacall. She's based on a certain traits Bacall had. Um, or the aging does. actor doesn't seem to me much like Bogart. Oh no, no, he's not like Bogart at all. It was it was the the dynamic rather than the people right. that I was interested in there. No, they and were, uh, but, but go go ahead. I'm I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Uh, just that it ended up being a uh, a fruitful era to set it in because it it made it 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 made it it gave an explanation for why Lily was marrying this man in the first place. Right? If I had set it in right. 2010. Why, 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 why would she bother at that point? There's certainly, it is not easy, I think, for an actor to be out, but nor, nor do I think we see a whole lot of um, studio arranged marriages. No, of course not. Uh, There was, I think what struck me about it, apart from, apart from the magical elements, which we haven't even really uh, talked about, is that it, 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 it did bring in a kind of a different mythology, you know, the Hollywood mythology, the Hollywood studio system. Uh, and the idea, obviously, well, there, there, there's also a bit of uh, Snow White in it as well. You know, the, so, so, so one of the things that consistently happens throughout this uh, collection, The Burning Girls and Other Stories, is that you find how you're, you're showing us how these classic fairy tales plug into different cultural matrices. matrices. They plug into Hollywood. They plug into punk rock. They plug into Victorian uh, labor abuses. Uh, they plug into the American immigrant experience, which we didn't talk about, but that's a large part of uh, Burning Girls. And by the way, we didn't mention this earlier, but Burning, we did mention it, but it did win the Shirley Jackson Award, which strikes me as being a really appropriate award because it's not quite horror and not quite fantasy and, uh, and, and more or less literary, 
I was and delighted to win that award. I really it's, was. It's a very cool award to have. And it's, uh, I, I never won it, but as a judge, I got one of the little stones. Um, but that's another thing that seems to recur is the immigrant experience. I suppose so. Um, I guess when you grow up a Jewish leftist, that's such a, 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 an origin myth. You know, yeah. such an origin story is those big waves of immigration to the U.S. in the early part of the well, late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, and I, I don't it's, a, it's, of course, only one version of immigrants of this of immigrant stories in America. There are there are up through the present day, of course, you know, as many stories as there are people. Um, but um, I guess I felt like I had to not had to, but that I wanted to grapple with that because it felt like. It is my heritage. Um, and Burning Girls itself started out in my mind as a very comic story. It was really? supposed to be a very comic, short, very comic story told by the Miller's daughter character about how she, she looks like anybody's old booby now. But when she was young, you should have seen her. She was beautiful. Um, but the more research I did, the less, it be, the, the less and less appropriate that kind of story became. Yeah. Um, and so I brought in Deborah as the narrator, the 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 older sister, the the darker sister, the the uh, the witch sister, um, who who doesn't always have the best relationship with her little sister, actually. And the story became itself a, a little bleaker, a little grimmer. Um, and I think probably in that sense, uh, a bit truer to the experiences of those women than, than a comic story would have been. I think that's true. And I think another thing that was striking to me about the story was the representation of immigrants trying to speak English um, and having different levels of success at it. And it's, I I know I have odd connections sometimes when I'm reading, but one of the things that I've always wondered about were especially Yiddish speaking immigrants or Polish speaking immigrants or whatever, uh, trying to get by, as, as very literate, um, articulate family members talking among themselves who then have to talk to the outside world in broken English. And there was a novel, and the, I've, I've seen this done very seldom, and maybe it's not a good idea to try it anymore. But there was a novel in the early 30s uh, about Jewish immigrants by Henry Roth called Call It Sleep. And uh, Call It Sleep dealt with Yiddish-speaking immigrants. And what struck me about the novel, which I have not reread in decades, I might be misremembering, is that when the family was talking among themselves, they were surprisingly witty and they'd make wordplay and they were literate. And, the, and, and then when you had a representation in that novel of the family talking to anybody outside it, you realized how limited their English was and what they must have sounded like to the people who were not in their own culture. And I think that comes across in The Burning Girls also. You've got a really bright, literate, articulate family, which is suffering from a language deficiency, which virtually every American would have in going to any other country in the world right now. Absolutely. I sure would. Um, I am not, uh, I, I am not, I, I am conversational in French, but certainly not fluent enough to write anything. Um, I, you know, it was interesting. I made a, I made a conscious choice to make the, the dialogue in Burning Girls flowery because I had been reading a Bintel brief, which was um, a collection of uh, uh, letters sent to the advice columnist uh, of um, the forward, the Yiddish, the Yiddish, the leftist Yiddish paper. And these letters were just, I mean, it was as though Oscar Wilde was writing them, right? I think there's a scene in Burning Girls when um, Deborah says of her sister, she's chained herself to 
to a fig, to, she's chained herself to a monster of iniquity with golden filigree, something like that. Um, wow. And one of it, it probably wasn't quite that flowery, but one of my readers said, "Oh, you should take that. You, you need to take that out. That that doesn't re- be real. That's not realistic." And I said, "No, really, take it from me. Like this is at least in the letters to the local advice columnist. This is the language that that people were expressing themselves yeah. in." And I think it uh, it's partially the the um, I think it sort of translates as the sort of emotion, the, the stereotypical emotionality of Jewish and probably Italian immigrants as well, right? That that is that is being represented there, um, and well, it's yeah. less emotionality and more fluency. And, and, you and know, there was a writer here in Chicago who just died not long ago, who did that for Greek immigrants in Chicago, uh, and it was the same kind of thing. You, the the title of his uh, his name was Harry Mark Petrakis. And he won one National Book Award, but the title of his first collection of short stories strikes me as encapsulating that experience that you've described for Italian-Americans, for, for Yiddish-speaking Americans. The title of his first book was Pericles on 35th Street. And it, was, it dealt with what the Greek-American community, and he grew up in the 30s and 40s. I used to know him reasonably. Um, and it, it, it dealt with dealing with the kind of classical background of your culture in a world in which you're considered nothing but a restaurant manager. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things I was trying to work with in Burning Girls was that Deborah moves from being cosmopolitan in Bialystok, right? right? Cosmopolitan and known as a very competent healer, midwife, witch, to working in a sweatshop on the Lower East Side. And that the idea that when you immigrate, you almost you have to take a step down, at least one step down the class ladder, and how you how do you make your way along um, after doing that, um, and and how Deborah sort of slowly is tries to build her 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 business as it as it were back up again. Yeah, being well, it's, it's the experience of being an outsider, and and uh, it's it's interesting enough that it shows up in. It's, it's one of the great American themes. It shows up in books like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, I mean, any, any number of n- books about Southerners moving to the North. It shows up in immigrant narratives. It shows up in Native American na- na- narratives of people moving into the cities. So it is one of the great themes. There's a lot of stuff we haven't covered. I mean, I was just looking at my list of, of just titles. Um, we haven't really focused a lot on, uh, on, on some very powerful feminist themes. One of the stories that is hard to forget is the revenant, which is now that I think about it, there's a there's a it's a revenge fable, but it's really about deciding on whether or not to exact revenge, isn't it? I mean, I think in some ways it's about tr- deciding, trying figuring out, trying to find out whether you have the capability to to recover yourself. Um, that the revenge the revenge ends up not recovering the protagonist, and and the story. I suppose, should I, uh, yeah, the story ends with a consideration of whether she can recover herself, whether that's even possible. Well, yeah. Um, um, just very briefly, it's a story about a teenage girl who has a really unfortunate encounter with a guy in his mid-40s, I guess. And we, and, and, and I guess the folklore connection there is the Bl- Bloody Mary uh, folk, folk tale, folk belief, what is it? Sometimes it's called uh, Bloody Mary, sometimes it's called Mary Worth, sometimes it's called... Uh, whatever that horror movie was that was set here in Chicago in the project. Oh, uh, La Llorona? Or, no, Candyman? Candyman, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of looking in a mirror and, well, everybody knows the story. Uh, yeah, it sprung up in the 70s in the U.S., just across the U.S. You get, in the 1970s, you get 
say Bloody Mary in the mirror and she comes out and gets you. Well, we should ask, uh, we're, we're, we're getting close to 60 minutes and Jonathan has, uh, for, for those of us who are still listening to, the, to us, uh, something happened with Jonathan, but he told us to keep recording and we can upload it and finish up. But I'd like to know, uh, given all the different areas you've explored in the short fiction, what's next? Uh, do you want to write more short fiction in this area? Do you, I realize you have a dual career as a scholar and a teacher, and you have demands made on you on that area. But is it your inclination to want to write a novel? I definitely want to keep on writing short fiction, and I have a list of short fiction ideas to pursue when um, when libraries open again and I can go in them and write. But I I, I have been trying to work through the my the idea for a novel, um, and I'd really like to. I'm thinking about the uh, the Jewish figure of Lilith in Jewish mythology, um, and I've been watching over and over again Thor Ragnarok, uh-huh. and I've been trying. <laughs> And what I really want to do is write a novel um, that does for Lilith and a couple other figures from Jewish mythology what Ragnarok does for Norse myth. Interesting. Um, perhaps Lilith is also the name of the demon that follows the girls to the United States, and uh, yes, and it's uh, it, it's it's also the title of a George MacDonald novel, which doesn't have much to do with Jewish mythology. I'm but I actually went through a period where I named every single protagonist either Lily or Lilith. <laughs> it's, I, I, nobody ever noticed, but like for about six stories straight, everyone was either Lily or Lilith. It's a great name. I mean, it's understandable. One of the things I wanted to mention also, since we started off talking about uh, IAFA, the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Art, which I guess is like next week or week after that, and I looked at the program, and you're on a discussion, which people can log into IAFA.org and I figure out how to join us. But you're on a discussion with uh, Kelly Robson, Andy Duncan, and John Kessel. I that, am indeed. And that sounds great. That sounds like uh, just a terrific discussion. <laughs> I just, I, I'm looking forward to hearing anything Andy has to say. <laughs> and I mean, I, certainly Kelly and John as well. Yeah, um, but Andy Duncan is always such a pleasure to listen to. Well, um, Andy is one of those people who's—I've said this many times before on the podcast, and I've said it to Andy. Once you've heard Andy read a story, you can't read an Andy Duncan story without hearing that voice. Yes, yes, completely agree. So anyway, let's let's uh, invite people to 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 listen to that. We should also invite people to uh, to find copies of the of, of the tour anthology, um, the Burning Girls, and other stories. And uh, to what else? What else should people be looking for you to do in the next six months? Um, uh, on March 24th, I'm going to be part of a conversation with uh, Arkady Martin and Naomi Kritzer and CJ Polk. And I think one or two other people whose names are escaping me at the moment. Oh. Um, uh, read the room that Tor, Tor sponsor, Tor.com sponsors um, on women in fantasy. And uh, that's going to be done uh, March 24th, I think, at 6 p.m., but I'm not positive about the, about the time. Um, Will you put notice up on your website? Oh, oh, oh well, how kind of you to assume I have a functional website. It's a university website, isn't it? Yeah, I, don't, I, I, have, a, I have a website, but I, I can't say I'm very good at keeping it updated. I, I don't know if it even comes up if you Google I, me. The, the, same, the same thing here. I, my university put up a website for me years ago. I'm retired now. I don't even know if it's still there. But anyway, let's at least encourage people to, to, to log into IAFA.org and, and listen to your conversation with Kelly, who also has a new collection of short stories out, we should mention, uh, Kelly Rolls, and Andy Duncan, who had a 
he had a collection out last year, but he's Andy. He's always got a new collection coming out, and it's always great. But until then, it's been great talking to you. We're sorry that we lost um, Jonathan. We hope this will be able to go out without a hitch. We're recording it uh, in a way that should preserve conversation you and I have had. And if there are glitches in the middle of it, let's hope Jonathan can, can edit those out. Again, thanks very much. We've been talking to Veronica Shanos, and this has been the Cood Street Podcast.